We're coming to the close of Romans chapter 3. So praise God for that. We've made it now by the end of this through Romans chapter 3. And I honestly hope that you've been reading, praying, and meditating over Romans. This has been a powerful series. Amen? And we need to um, continue to be thinking forward in Romans as we read. And it's important that you guys continue to look to this on your own. So I'm going to start by just reading this whole passage, then we're going to break it down. So um, if you want to be with me, we're in Romans 3, 21 through 31. It says this, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is the boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? Of works? No, by the law of faith. For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. There's a lot to unpack here today, and I want you to stay with me. This section starts with some powerful words, but now, but now. And this is interesting. We sang in first service. They had the choir, which you guys missed out on. I wish they would have had it second, but maybe next time you can sing in the choir and then you can be here. But it was awesome. There's a lot of people and we sang Amazing Grace. My chains are gone. It was such a perfect segue because he says, I was blind, but now I see. There's this but now in everyone's life. There's this moment in our life where we go from what's former to what's new and there's this but now moment, and we're there in Romans. Up to this point, we've been talking about how evil and how bad humanity has become as a result of sin. I mean, you can't read through the first three chapters, with the exception maybe in chapter one of the beginning, and not feel a little bit down about the state of things, right? I mean, if we're being honest, if we're really taking it seriously, it can be a downer. And so the good news today is that we've reached that point of but now. James Kaufman writes this about but now. He says, but now. These are the words that are pivot, the pivot between the old and the new. The hinge upon which the door closes upon the old and shameful darkness of human history and opens upon the new living way of Jesus Christ. It is at this point that Paul would announce the means by which paradise lost may be recovered. And if you're anything like me, that's exciting. Paradise lost may be recovered. Because really, that's what we have lost. Think about it. In the beginning, 
God created male and female alike in his image. But as a result of the fall, we are born into sin. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2.3, we are by nature children of wrath. So the Greek word for nature here is phusis, and it means in, um, inherent nature, origin, or birth. The word birth is here. And I know there's some argument in different circles about this, but when you look at plainly at what Paul's teaching, Paul is saying you are born into sin. By nature, this is something that comes natural to you. We're born flawed and broken. So there's this but now moment, right? Because if we're going to be honest, and again, maybe a controversial idea, but we're not created beings. Adam and Eve were created. You weren't. Creation has to do with origin. They were our representation at the beginning. God made Adam and Eve, and from Adam and Eve, all life come. We are born. We are born. And we are born into sin. And because of that, we rebel against God. Because of that, we are separated from God. Now, I'm not proposing, as maybe a Catholic faith would propose, that because of original sin, we need to baptize infants. I'm not saying that I do believe there is an age of accountability, and I think that's what we would teach. And we can see that most clearly in the wanderings in the wilderness, when the Israelites are wandering for 40 years, and everyone under the age of 21 survives at the end. There's this time when God says, okay, now it's on you. Now you have a responsibility. So I, I don't want us to be afraid to look at what the text says because we're fighting against some other traditions. And that's what the church did for about 40 years from the 1950s to the 1990s is say, we're not these people, but we never said who we are. But we're a Bible-believing church. And the Bible teaches that by birth, we are children of wrath, people who are born in rebellion and separated from God. We talked about this a little on Wednesday night in my, in my not so small, small group of 17 middle school and high school boys. They said, when's the first time you disobeyed God? When's the first time you sinned? And of course they knew, well, probably before I can remember, right? And then they all gave cute little stories about lying, stealing, cheating, disobeying, right? Why? Nobody taught them how to do that. They didn't have to be taught. That's what comes natural. We are rebellious towards God. This is the paradise lost because there was a moment in time when Adam and Eve got to spend all their time in the garden in paradise with no fear, no harm. And they walked with God in the cool of the evening. They were naked and they felt no shame. Man, what an awesome depiction of what God wants and desires for us and what we can have in Christ. But there was a dark period in history prior to the coming of the Messiah that this just wasn't possible. That atonement was limited. That it was just keeping up with the times. There was this law given through Moses. And so we're going to look today at how this situation impacted the early church. See, the Jews had been given the law and the prophets They'd been elected as God's chosen people, but they rebelled too. 
So you see, time after time, they fail to obey God. And then time after time, they get so broken, they cry out to God. And time after time, God rescues Israel. And you see, Paul right about it, he says, did Israel fall beyond recovery? The answer is no, not at all. Because see, it wasn't about Israel. It was never about Israel. It was always about God. See, can you imagine for just a minute this, this rebellious pursuit of self-righteousness that the Jews had? They were attempting through the law. They believed they were superior because of God's election. And you know, here's the thing about the law. I, I believe at some point the law became more important than God to a lot of people. And what's the modern day equivalent? Tradition has become more important than God in the church. Otherwise, why do we have 4,000 flavors? If tradition wasn't more important than God, we wouldn't have that because God clearly states there is one church. There's one body. But yet we allow things to divide us because sometimes tradition can get more important. Like Derek was talking about this morning, sometimes style of worship is one of those traditions. That doesn't work for me. What doesn't work for you? It's not about you. It's about bringing praise to God. It's not working for you because you're not working for God. That's a heart check. If God is being exalted and it doesn't excite you, then that's a problem you have, not a problem Derek has. And this morning, that's what the Jews were dealing with. There was this idea that we are superior because we are God's chosen people. So you can imagine how scary this idea of but now must have been to the early church Jews. But now, uh-oh. You're saying for 1,500 years we've done it this way, but now, but now there's something else. 1,500 years. Think about that in the context of religion. That's the entire history of Islam, 1,500 years, starting around 600. 1,500 years of following the law. But now there's something new. Could you imagine how scary that was? I bet you can. Because we've gone through a lot of change lately. And change is a scary word in the church, right? Anybody get scared when they hear the word change? Yeah, if you're being honest, most of you. We've literally turned over the entire ministry staff in two years. That is a lot of change. That's a lot of change. So you can get there's some tension there. And in that, it's the wondering who's going to replace who? Is this person going to be like this person? What's this person going to be about? How are we going to know this is the right fit? There's all these questions. So when Paul says, but now, I can imagine this is scary. But can you imagine how amazing the idea of but now must have been to the early church Gentiles? But now, yes, now we get to be a part of the promise. Now we get to be a part of the promise. And for me, this is even more exciting because I'm a Gentile. Anybody else here a Gentile? Or are you guys Israelites? Maybe you may be. I don't know. I'm not judging. Some people are. I know, I've met a few. This idea that there's a but now, all the way up to this time, there's been the law. And this law has been so important to the Jewish people because it marked them as special. 
But verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul is revealing something new, something mind altering. It would be a cause for great distress and great rejoicing. Second Corinthians, Paul writes this in chapter two, verse 16, to the one we are the aroma that brings life and to the other we are the aroma that brings death. He's talking about the law of faith or the gospel. He says, those who have been redeemed by the gospel, we are the aroma of life. When they smell us, it reminds them of that they're alive. When they smell this word, he uses this imagery. But for those who haven't accepted us, we are the aroma of death. What we're teaching means death. It's their eminent doom that's coming. But now separate and apart from the law, the righteousness of God or God's righteousness has been made visible, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul is saying two things here. The first thing he's saying, there's a slide that should come with this. The righteousness of God or the justice of God is now being seen. The word manifest means to be made known or be visible, to be seen apart from the law. Meaning there's this new lens in which we can view God's righteousness. A new lens, a new way of looking at who God is and how just or how righteous he is. The other side of this coin is that this is about God's righteousness being seen and not our imputed righteousness as is sometimes taught due to some errors in translations when they say a righteousness instead of the righteousness. I want, I, that's important to me because it would be really easy to look at this part and say, he's talking about there's this new righteousness that I can have. And that's not what it's saying. It's talking about God being visible, that people being able to look and see how righteous God is or how just, that's another word for righteousness, God is. And this must have been significant because it means for 1,500 years, the Jews could see that God was righteous through the lens of the law and both the law and the prophets were witnessing God's righteousness, meaning that the existence of the law and the prophets and what they taught was testifying to God's righteousness. Just the fact that they taught and they witnessed these things. When you looked at the law and the law said, here's a standard, based on that standard, I know, man, God must be righteous. When I listen to what the prophets were teaching, I'm like, God must be righteous. So for 1,500 years, this was the measure by which people could see how righteous God was. This idea of a lens through which things are seen is sometimes called a worldview. And we all have our own worldview, right? We all come from different backgrounds, different cultural things, different fam familial things that create a worldview. Paul is teaching something that would have had to profoundly change their worldview if it were true. If true, then it meant that the law and the prophets weren't the only means by which God's righteousness could be seen or known, which would then mean that the superiority of the Israelites wasn't what they thought it was. That Jews weren't so special after all. That's a big deal. When you've been God's chosen people for that long, that's a big deal. And think about it, we're not just talking about the 1,500 years, right? Because that's just since the law came. That's since Moses. There was a long time before Moses. When, since Abraham. We're going back to Abraham. Abraham predates Moses by quite a while. And there was a period in redemptive history 
where there was no law. And yet God still had his people. So God was actually the one who was superior. And he had chosen Israel to reveal that, not because they were special on their own merit, but rather because God's choosing them was solely a result of God's grace. I want you to hear this morning. God's election of Israel, as is his election of you, is solely based on the merit of God's grace. Some people would argue against that, but I would disagree based on what I read in Scripture. This idea of God electing Israel had nothing to do with Israel's performance. God didn't look into history and say, Israel was going to obey and follow me, so therefore I'm going to choose Israel. That's ludicrous. Because they didn't. We can look at the history. We can look back and say they didn't follow God. And they were punished for it. They were sent into exile. They were in prison. They were taken over many times, but God never gave up on them because God is faithful even when we're not. Goes into verse 22, he says this. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. This is a threat to traditionalism for the Jews. Traditionally, we're God's chosen people. God's righteousness is seen through us, through the law, and through the prophets. No, that's not true anymore. See, there's this new way of seeing God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Through faith in Jesus, the anointed one. So Paul is telling them and telling us that God's righteousness can also be seen through faith in Jesus separate and apart from the law. The law is not a requirement of seeing the righteousness of God because it can and will be seen through faith in Jesus. The law is no longer a requirement. Is that saying the law is bad? No. Is it saying the law is not valid? No. It's saying the law is no longer a requirement. And we can infer here, in fact, that Jesus was always the only way to see the fullness of God's righteousness. Based on Colossians 1.19 that says, For God was pleased to have the fullness of himself dwell in Jesus. Or Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. In reading this, then, you, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ for which was not made known to people in other generations as it has been revealed by God's holy apostles and prophets now. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. There's this new thing that has come. Can you imagine the but now moment? Oh, Gentiles can get in too. Oh, we know Peter wrestled with this, right? Peter wrestled with this mightily, and he was a godly man. In fact, he was the rock. This idea was so profoundly different that they had a hard time reconciling. The fact that the law and the prophets revealed the righteousness of God is true, but they only did so to a certain degree of understanding because they were always pointing toward Jesus. And Jesus was required to truly understand what was being revealed to them. How do we know this? Well, we just read the Gospels, right? Why does Jesus constantly spend time 
explaining to Jews what they should already know. He'll say, well, you know, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. Right? If you have anger with your brother or sister, you've committed murder. He didn't change anything. He explained what it meant. They never understood it. In fact, what's crazy is in John 4.25, the Samaritan woman admitted this much. She said this, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. See, the Samaritans had a slightly different view because they were kind of half-breeds. You know, they were the people that were dispersed and they had mixed with other people. So the Israelites looked down, the Jews looked down on them. But it seems to me in some ways, the Samaritans had it right. They were waiting for the Christ to come to explain everything, to make everything make sense. And that's what Jesus did. And the result of this according to verse 22, is now there is no distinction. The Jews no longer have a monopoly on seeing God's righteousness and bearing witness to his holiness. That is the intended purpose of all creation. Let me say that again. The intended purpose of all creation is bearing witness to God's holiness and through people being able to see God's righteousness through you. And not just you, but everything he's created. The rocks cry out in silence. Everything God's made bears witness to his glory, amen? We're the only ones who don't do it well. We're the only ones who rebel. It says in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, this is at the root of sin itself. All people are equal in the fact that they have missed the mark and come short of giving praise, honor, and glory to God. There's no distinction in humanity when it comes to God's righteousness and the glory because everyone through faith in Jesus Christ can see it and everyone is expected to reflect and witness it to the world around them and we've all sinned in failing not to do so. But now, there's this new thing. But even in our failing to make known his righteousness, which is sin, God's righteousness is bringing him glory. Think about it. When you obey God, he's glorified in that and he's seen, right? When you, are, when you represent Christ's image correctly, God is glorified, his righteousness is made known, his holiness is seen. When you fail and you sin against God, his righteousness is made known because he never fails and he never stumbles. So by the sheer contrast of us in him, he's glorified. See, it's always been about God. And we've always been about us. And that's the problem. But yet Paul says later on in Romans eleven thirty six, from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. From him, through him, and to him be the glory. Glory starts with God. It runs through God and it returns back to God because glory is all about God. And when God is glorified, his righteousness is made known, his justice, his perfection, who he is is seen clearly and people fall in praising and honoring him. Moving on, verses 24 through 26. Being justified is a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as propitiation and his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. 
because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me reword this a little bit. It's kind of wordy. And I'm going to use some Greek definitions here as a way of better explaining it. God has justified. Well, what does justified mean? To declare righteous or declare innocent. As a gift by his grace. Grace, unmerited favor. Through the redemption. Redemption means a release effective by payment of ransom. So when you're redeemed, what it means is somebody paid your ransom. You were held hostage by your sin and there was a cost and that cost was your sin debt and it was paid. That's what it means to be redeemed, which is Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as propitiation. The word propitiation is a sin offering by which the wrath of God will be appeased. See, there was only one person that could once and for all pay for our sin. It had to be a man, right? Sheeps and goats, bulls and goats, those things wouldn't work forever because they weren't sinning against God. It was man. So Jesus had to become fully man while being fully God, living fully perfectly under the law so that he would be a worthy once and for all sacrifice in his blood through faith to prove or to indicate his righteousness because in his forbearance, forbearance meaning patience or in the forbearance of God, he let go or he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration or the proof of his righteousness at the present time or season so that he would be both just, correct, righteous, or by implication, innocent, and justifier, the one declaring others just of the one who has faith in Jesus. So yes, God is. What's God doing here? God is justifying us. He's redeeming us. He's making a public off sin offering through the blood of Christ. He's providing his righteousness. He's demonstrating the depth of his forbearance or patience. Now, if we're looking at this list and this is accurate, what are we doing? This is what baffles. What are we doing in this? Anybody? Amen. Nothing. We did none of this. But it says there's this little verse in here that says, through faith. This is hard, man. This is real hard because I have to trust God. I have to believe in faith that God is actually doing all this and there's nothing that I can do on my own merit to make this true. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. By faith, we are justified. By faith, we are redeemed because God made a public sin offering through the blood of Jesus, his perfect sacrifice. It proved his righteousness and demonstrated the depths of his patience. Can I get an amen? I mean, does this not rock you a little bit? Because if it doesn't, I would ask that you check your heart. Maybe you're not really living the godly life you think you are. (laughs) Because when I look at this list, I see that I'm woefully unqualified to be in the presence of God. But by faith in Jesus Christ, he's given me that privilege. 
if we can see one thing about this section, it's that God is all about God, meaning that God being both just and the justifier brings his glory back to him. And this all holds together for us solely through faith, our faith in Jesus. See, this is where paradise is recovered. We can be born again, become a new creation through faith in Christ at the direction of the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, because of the work of the Son. Paradise recovered. We can now have fellowship with God. We can now begin to be pieced back together so that we somehow resemble the image of Jesus Christ according to Ephesians chapter two, verses nine through 11, by faith, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And this leads Paul to a couple of closing questions. Where then is boasting? Why, it's excluded. But what kind of law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Where's the boasting? Here's the boasting, I'll tell you. The boasting is in the cross of Christ, Galatians 6.14, and in our weakness, 2 Corinthians 12.9. The law of faith is simple, really, but Paul has now moved from God's righteousness, God's righteousness being seen, to God imputing righteousness or handing over his righteousness to us. We are justified or declared innocent by faith in the work and person of Jesus Christ verses 29 and 30. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Or is he just the God of the Jews only? Clearly he's the almighty God of creation. So is the question really a question of, is he the God of the universe, the creator? No. I think the question is better posed this way. Can other people groups be the people of God? Has God elected anyone else? Which would mean that they would receive his unmerited favor and protection. And Paul says that, yes, God will be the God of both the Jews who are circumcised as a sign and those who don't have the sign of circumcision because both are his by virtue of faith in Jesus. Amen? That's what we're talking about today. We are equal in sin, but we are also equal in Christ. In a world that proposes equality, acceptance, and tolerance, they're missing the point. The only, equal, the only equality we can have is the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore I cannot put myself above anyone else because at whatever measure I judge you, I will be judged. But in Jesus Christ, it's the same. Because God desires me to be his hands and feet, to be his representation. He desires the body of Christ to be one. There is no higher or lower. Sure, some of us have different roles and there's authority that's given. But we're one in Christ. There is equality in Christ as well. Because redemption comes through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Which leads to the final question. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. The Greek word for nullify means to render inoperative or abolish. When Paul, Paul asks, do we abolish the law? Do we render inoperative the law? 
Through faith in Jesus? No. Through faith in Jesus, the law is actually established. And the word established means to made to stand or to set in balance. Set in balance. The law was set in balance truly through faith in Christ because the purpose of the law was to what? Lead us to Christ. Does that mean we follow the law directly? No. It means by faith in Christ, it is the fulfillment of the law according to Matthew 5, 17 through 20 because the law is the tutor meant to let us lead us to faith in Christ, Galatians 3.24. But now, but now, there's this new thing. To us, it's not new, but maybe it is to you this morning. Maybe, like the Jews, you've been in church long enough that your traditions have become more important than your God. That your religious behavior has become the qualifier by which you would be saved. Because see, another thing we asked Wednesday night was this question. If, if we are standing at the pearly gates and St. Peter is there and he says, why should I let you in? What would you say? That's a dangerous question. I would probably venture say I don't want to talk, right? I'm hoping that somebody on the other side, namely Jesus, would say, let him in. I don't need to say anything because I risk then saying something I've done matters. But my faith tells me, and I'm assured of this, I have the seal and the sign of the Holy Spirit tells me I know where I'm going. And nothing can take me out of God's hand. If my faith is genuine, if my faith is real, then I will persevere to the end. And I'll receive the crown. And I'll hear these words from the inside. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let him in. I don't need to talk. If I feel the need to justify myself, I'm missing the point. See, this morning we see the teachings that but now is the place where the scales of righteousness and justice begin to tip in favor of the law of faith in Christ, accepting the gospel. In this gospel, it's revealed that we are equally deserving of God's wrath, his righteous punishment, but that the law is set into balance when it leads us to faith in Jesus Christ. This morning, we need to decide where our righteousness really comes from and who is truly deserving of glory. And I don't mean that merely intellectually, but I mean that in our hearts. How do you know if this is you? I want you to answer a couple of questions to yourself. Do you savor, savor the glory of God in your life? What do I mean by savor? So there's this new barbecue place on Battlefield called Hard Knocks. And when Josh Tarbett told me about it, he said this, he said, it was like I was praying to the ribs. And so my wife likes ribs. So I took her there and I'm trying to have a conversation. It's like a lunch date, you know? And she says, stop talking to me. I'm trying to eat these ribs. Do you savor the glory of God? Does it make you salivate to think about how good and how big and how righteous God is? Do you thirst and hunger for his righteousness to be made known in and through you? You need to gut check today. We all do. Because to him and through him and from him be glory alone. Amen. Will you pray with me?
Dear God, we, uh, I don't even know what to say. We don't deserve you, that's for sure. But we don't have to. And we thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for your revelation. We thank you for your love. May we be people whose hearts are pierced by what you've done and what you're doing in our lives. May we be more excited about you and what you're doing. And, and maybe we'd be so excited like the apostles said, we could never stop talking about Jesus because you are our only priority, not our number one priority. You're the list in which all of the priorities are written on, Lord. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.